Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of substance use and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help with substance use, visit spotify.com resources. Imagine, you're 20 years old, almost legal drinking age. You're out with your best friends and about to walk into a local college bar. The bar. If you spent time in a college town, you know the bar I'm talking about. It's unassuming, a little dingy, and the bouncer lets anyone in as long as they have a decent fake ID. The kind of place that has cheap shots and watered-down cocktails. After grabbing a few drinks, you and your friends snake through the crowd to the center of the dance floor. You're swaying side to side when one of your friends loses their balance and knocks into you. You turn around and put your arm around them for support. They're saying something, but the music's so loud you have to lean in close to hear. That's when you realize they're slurring their words. Their eyes are glazed over, and if you let go, they might end up on the floor. Looking at your friend, you wonder if this could be the tipping point, where just another night out turns into something else entirely. They look completely out of it, but you've had plenty of nights like this before, and you've always woken up in your beds the next morning. The worst that's ever come of these parties is a hangover. Then, as all these thoughts are racing through your mind, another friend comes over and offers to take them home. So, what do you do? Keep dancing or call it a night? I think most of us have been in a similar position, but hindsight is always 2020. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman named Lauren Spearer, or just Spearer to her friends. In 2011, she was a rising junior at Indiana University, pursuing her dream career in fashion, when a night in the town took a turn for the worse. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you want the quintessential American college experience, one with a big marching band and a well-known football team, there are a few schools that fit that bill quite like Indiana University Bloomington, or IU as it's more commonly known. The school is huge and football is a way of life. 
Their team is called the Hoosiers, and that's what students call themselves. In 2011, over 7,000 freshmen enrolled in the Bloomington campus, bringing the total undergraduate population to 40,000. It's the kind of place where it can be easy to fade into the background, but Lawrence Bearer's not the type to sit back and watch. She's 20 years old and can usually be found at the center of the tailgating crowds, throwing her head back in laughter. People tend to gravitate towards Lauren. Her roommate, Haydar Tamir, says everyone falls in love with Lauren the moment they meet her. By her junior year, Lauren has a tight-knit circle of friends, many of whom she met before she arrived on campus. Lauren's from Scarsdale, New York, a suburb of New York City, and attended a summer camp in Pennsylvania growing up. Many of the friends she met while at camp also chose IU for school, including her camp sweetheart, Jesse Wolf. Jesse's a year older than Lauren, so when she arrived, Lauren had a baked-in best friend to show her the ropes, which was good. It made the campus feel just a bit smaller. They started dating her freshman year and have been going strong now for two years. Although they're super close, they aren't attached at the hip. From what I can tell, they have overlapping but still separate social circles. On the night of June 2nd, 2011, Jesse's watching an NBA playoff game with his frat brothers at their house, and Lauren's getting ready for her own night with friends. The spring term may have ended, but Lauren's taking a summer class for credit towards her major before heading back to New York for a fashion internship. She's serious about her academics, but she also knows how to let loose. As much as IU is known for its academics and breakthrough medical research, it's also known for its wild parties. For years, IU's made the list of top party schools in America. In 2002, the Princeton Review gave it the number one spot. Like many college campuses, there's a whole menu of illicit drugs available to anyone who has the money and knows where to find them. This apparently includes someone in Lauren's social circle. One of her friends recalls hearing that she and some other friends did a couple different drugs while hanging out that night. At some point, Lauren gets a text from a friend from camp, Jay Rosenbaum. He wants her to come over to his place, then go out to Kilroy's sports bar, or as everyone calls it, sports. It's close to Lauren's place and easy to get into with a fake ID. So Lauren and her friends go pretty often. Lauren's apartment complex is called Smallwood Plaza, and it's right in the center of Bloomington, surrounded by restaurants and hotels, and only five minutes to campus. Her friends all live within a few blocks, so it only takes about five minutes for Lauren and her friend David Roan, who also lives in the complex, to walk to Jay's. They arrive just after midnight. A bunch of people are there, and they're really drunk. Jay's had anywhere from six to 10 shots of vodka, at some point, Lauren bumps into a guy named Corey Rossman. The two met last weekend at one of the biggest parties of the year, the Indianapolis 500, a huge two-day car racing competition that attracts thousands of people to the area every year. By all accounts, Corey's excited to see Lauren again. I don't know how Lauren feels about Corey, but they apparently talk for a bit at Jay's. Then some of the friends move on to sports, the bar, while Lauren and Corey stop by Corey's apartment for about an hour. He lives really close. When they join everyone else at sports, it's 1.46 a.m. and Lauren seems really messed up. It's a busy Thursday night. 
It sounds like the kind of place that's hard to navigate sober. There are two levels with multiple bars on each, and there's a huge beach patio in the back that's filled with sand. At some point, Lauren heads there and takes her shoes off. A witness will later claim she had trouble walking. Corey was the only thing keeping her upright, and he continues to buy drinks for himself and Lauren. Then, about 45 minutes later, around 2.30 a.m., Lauren and Corey head back to Smallwood. When they leave the bar, Lauren's barefoot. Security cameras at the apartment complex show them entering the lobby and going up to the fifth floor where Lauren lives. They step off the elevator and run into a group of guys in the hallway who ask Lauren if she's okay. She's swaying on her feet. Before Lauren can answer, Corey says he's taking care of her, but the other guys don't seem to trust him. They warn Corey that he'd better act right and bring her back to her apartment. Corey curses at them, saying they should mind their own business. Then one of the guys punches Corey in the jaw, knocking him to the floor. This happens less than 100 yards from Lauren's apartment. If the goal of the fight is to get Lauren home, it fails. Because 12 minutes later, security cameras show Lauren and Corey leaving the building. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's about a five-minute walk from Lauren Spears' hallway to Corey Rossman's apartment. But in the early hours of June 3rd, 2011, it takes a lot longer. Lauren stumbles for about a block, then needs to take a break. She tries to sit on some steps, but topples over and smacks her head on the sidewalk. Security cameras show Lauren falling two more times, once on her face. Lauren drops her purse, keys, and student ID. Eventually, Corey bends over and lifts her onto his back in a fireman's carry. That's how they finally arrive at his apartment. Once inside, Corey vomits. His roommate gets him into bed and then isn't sure what to do about Lauren. He tries to get her to sleep on their couch, but she insists on heading home. The roommate can tell she's too intoxicated to go anywhere, but Lauren says she won't sleep on their couch. At a loss for what else to do, he makes a phone call around 3.30 a.m. to Jay, Lauren's camp friend. Jay's the guy who hosted the party before sports, the one where Corey and Lauren reconnected. Corey's roommate wants to bring Lauren to Jay's apartment, presumably hoping he'll know what to do. When they arrive, Jay answers the door. He's tired, but he can't miss that bruise that's now flowering under Lauren's eye. He asks how she got hurt, but Lauren doesn't remember. A few friends from out of town are crashing with Jay that night, but it doesn't seem like they get too involved. Jay tries and fails to get in touch with someone to bring Lauren home. At this point, Jay doesn't know what to do, and Lauren's adamant that she wants to go back to her place. So around 4.30 a.m., Jay lets her go. From his balcony, he watches Lauren walk barefoot to College Avenue, down the street from Smallwood. 
Then Lauren turns the corner and disappears out of view, and Jay goes back inside. Now, Lauren's apartment is incredibly close to Jay's place, only two and a half blocks away. And there's a security camera along the route that should have caught Lauren walking, but for some reason, she never passes by. She never appears in any footage. She's never seen again. The next morning, Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse, tries to get in touch with her. They have plans, but she doesn't pick up or answer his texts. After several more attempts, someone finally returns his calls, but it's not Lauren. It's an employee at sports. Lauren left her phone there last night. So Jesse gets in touch with Lauren's roommate, Hadar Tamir. Hadar also hasn't seen Lauren. When Jesse updates her on what's going on, Hadar agrees. Something's wrong. They meet up on campus, and Hadar gives Jesse keys to their apartment so he can look for Lauren. But she's not there. By 4.30 p.m. on June 3rd, 2011, a friend files a missing person report with the Bloomington Police Department. Across the country, in Scarsdale, New York, Lauren's parents receive a phone call during dinner. Her mother, Charlene Spearer, watches her husband's face fall as he listens. He says the words, Lauren's missing, and her heart stops. Immediately, Charlene and Robert start calling hospitals in and around Bloomington. Lauren has a heart condition called Long QT Syndrome that she sometimes takes medication for. The disorder means she can suddenly develop an irregular heartbeat, which can make her faint, seize up, or cause her heart to just stop. They wonder if Lauren had an episode, but none of the hospitals have any record of her coming in. So Robert and Charlene book a flight to Bloomington the next day, June 4th. In the coming days, Lauren's parents and local law enforcement rally hundreds of volunteers to look for Lauren. In addition to IU students, locals on horseback and members of the National Guard flood the streets of Bloomington. Some have driven for hours from other states to join the search. They move beyond the city, combing through the surrounding farmland, forest, and a nearby quarry. Dive teams sift through the waters of nearby Lake Monroe. Charlene desperately wants to find her daughter, but as she searches, the thought of finding her daughter helpless somewhere in a remote forest overwhelms her. She puts her head down and keeps looking anyway. Lauren's friends take their search online. A few tweets turn into a Facebook page, a website, and an official Twitter account. The buzz brings national media attention. Soon, celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Ryan Seacrest, and Stephen Colbert amplify awareness of Lauren's disappearance. America's Most Wanted also features her on the show. The Spearers post a $100,000 reward for information that could reunite them with their daughter. In time, other donations bring the total up to more than $250,000. Lauren's family is certain that someone out there knows what happened to her. With enough of an incentive, they're hoping that person will come forward. Naturally, there's a spotlight on anyone who spent time with Lauren the night she went missing, like Corey and Jay, who were some of the last people to see her alive. But as police piece together a timeline, they interview anyone who might have relevant information. The investigation is slow going. Only one of Lauren's friends volunteers information to the police. Some refuse to take polygraph tests. 
The lack of cooperation is frustrating for Lauren's loved ones. After a few days, Jesse hits a breaking point and decides to take matters into his own hands. He and his father show up at Jay's apartment to confront him. We don't know what they discussed, but the next break in the case doesn't have anything to do with Jay or Corey. While scouring security footage, they notice a white pickup truck appear in frame twice during the early morning hours of June 3rd, like it was circling around a block in Lauren's neighborhood. The truck's a few years old and has a logo on the side that they can't quite make out. It also looks like something's inside the truck bed, but the footage is too dark and grainy to tell what it is. 12 days after Lauren's disappearance, police release the footage to the public. If Lauren was kidnapped, maybe her abductor was in the driver's seat. It's June 15th, 2011, almost two weeks after Lauren Spearer disappeared. After releasing security footage of a white pickup truck that cameras caught circling the area where Lauren was last seen, investigators are flooded with nearly 500 tips and are finally able to identify the driver. Lauren's family waits on pins and needles as he's brought in for questioning. The driver explains to police that he was at Lauren's apartment complex around 4.15 a.m. to pick up a Smallwood staff member. He insists he didn't go around the block several times. He was just there for the one pickup. After reviewing footage from a few different cameras, police realized there was a discrepancy between the time recorded on the cameras. Because of that, it looked like the truck had circled the block more than once, but it hadn't. It only drove by once. Additional footage corroborates the driver's story and law enforcement eliminates him as a person of interest. This becomes a frustrating pattern in the investigation. There's no shortage of leads, but none seem to get them anywhere. A few weeks later, police decide to undergo a massive undertaking, sorting through thousands of tons of trash at the local landfill. I can't imagine what went through the Spears' minds as officials searched, but the search comes up empty, and as more time passes, public interest in their daughter's case wanes. By September 2011, Lauren's been missing for three months. Around this time, the Spears hire a private investigator named Bo Deedle. He's a retired New York cop known for his work on other high-profile missing person cases. Bo's big personality and hot-blooded approach has turned him into a bit of a divisive figure, but her parents believe he could be just the right person to breathe new life into Lauren's case and give it the attention it deserves. After Bo starts work on the case, some of the men who were with Lauren that night hire lawyers. Bo thinks this could mean they know more than they're letting on. But to be clear, that line of thinking is problematic. But while wanting a lawyer is not a sign of guilt, the Spears do become frustrated that Lauren's friends won't give them more information about that night. Lauren's mother, Charlene, tells ABC News, quote, I think she didn't make wise choices that night but she didn't make herself disappear. In June, 2013, the Spears sue Corey and Jay in civil court, alleging that their negligent behavior resulted in Lauren's, quote, disappearance, injury, and death that night. But it's a difficult case to make. Corey and Jay's lawyers argue that Lauren was an adult, making her own decisions that night. And because she's never been found, no one can prove whether she was injured or killed that night. Ultimately, the case never goes to trial. A federal judge dismisses the suit, 
and the investigation into Lauren's disappearance goes quiet again. Until another crime hits Indiana University almost two years later. In April 2015, a 22-year-old student named Hannah Wilson decides to celebrate the end of her undergraduate career. After a night of party hopping, she and her friends end up at sports, the last bar Lauren visited before she went missing. After Hannah gets a little too drunk, her friends put her in a cab home. And the next day, her body is found in a rural area outside of Bloomington, far from the sorority house she'd been living in. An autopsy reveals that she died from blunt force trauma to her head. Four days later, Bloomington police announced that Hannah's killer, a man named Daniel Messel, is being investigated in relation to Lauren's disappearance. Prosecutor Ted Adams, who worked on the Hannah Wilson case, told the Bloomington Herald Times that he believed Daniel had a history of harassing and sexually assaulting women that dated back to 2012. While these crimes didn't have enough evidence to make them admissible in court, Adams said that in his opinion, Lauren Spearer was in the same zone of danger that Daniel Messel operated in. All of his 2012 attacks happened near Smallwood, the apartment complex where Lauren lived. But it's important to note, Messel has never been charged in Lauren's case. He is currently in prison serving an 80-year sentence. Since 2015, investigators have received many more tips and leads, including one that claimed Lauren was murdered and her killers dumped her body in the Ohio River. Media outlets and armchair detectives have speculated about so many different aspects of this case. Lauren's mental state, her health condition, what if any drugs were in her system? People have cast suspicion in basically every direction. And by far, the most attention has been paid to Lauren's inner circle of friends on campus. But I'm not here to speculate or place blame on anyone. To date, none of Lauren's friends or acquaintances have been named as suspects in her case, and no one has been charged. At the end of the day, the truth is, we just don't know enough. The Spears say they've now accepted that their daughter is dead, but that hasn't changed the fact that they still want answers. And with so many people around Lauren that night, in my opinion, we should hold out a lot of hope that those answers will someday come to light. Because like we always say, someone knows something. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Lauren's disappearance has inspired safety reforms on IU's campus, as well as a new law for the state. The Indiana Lifeline law is meant to encourage people to call 911 if someone is intoxicated and needs medical intervention. It offers the caller and only the caller immunity from certain alcohol-related offenses, including charges related to public intoxication and underage drinking, so long as they are fully cooperative with law enforcement. To learn more about the specifics of how the law works, visit indianalifeline.org. Lauren Spears' case remains open and active. To report information about Lauren's disappearance, you can call the Bloomington Police Department at 812-339-4477 or go to findlauren.com, a website run by her family. 
If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Hannah McIntosh, edited by Natalie Pertzowski and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.